morning. Good morning. Testing, testing. There we go. Good morning. My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace, and we're going to be wrapping up our series on the book of Romans this morning. The title of our message this morning is Unity, Mission, Glory. Unity, Mission, Glory. And I want you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to be talking about Romans 15, 1 through 7, but in some ways I'm going to be using this text as a springboard to talk a bit about both chapter 15 and chapter 16. Uh, Before we begin, let me pray for us. Please join me. Father, thank you for welcoming, welcoming us into your family through Jesus Christ. Thank you for unifying us as your people, united in our worship of and obedience to your Son, Jesus Christ. With one voice, through our words and our love for one another, may we bear witness to the world of the good news that we have received, the only hope of salvation which we have through Jesus Christ. And may we do all of these things to the glory of your name, for your glory throughout this life and for all eternity. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Stephen Covey, the author of numerous productivity books, famously, is famously quoted as saying this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You guys ever heard this? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And he says this because it's easy when we're working on a project to begin to lose sight of the main thing, to miss the forest for the trees. I often see this when I am working with young couples who are planning their weddings. I've had the privilege of doing premarital counseling with more than a dozen young couples over the years. And as the wedding day approaches, all of the details of planning begin to get them all spun up and excited and overwhelmed as the day approaches. And regularly when I meet with them, I remind them that the main point of the wedding isn't the budget, it's not the colors, it's not the flowers, the invitations, the photography and videography, the food, the music, the reception, the venue, the rings, or the dress. As important as all of these things are, they are not the main thing. The main thing is the covenant that they are making through taking of vows. The moment in their wedding when they stand before God and all those who are gathered to make unbreakable promises to one another. This is the moment when they enter into the covenant of marriage. You can have all these other things, but if you do not have that one thing, then the wedding hasn't taken place. In the same way, all of those other details can go awry, but if that one thing is present, if you make this covenant, these promises before God, then at the end of the day, no matter what other disaster may befall you, you will be married. I remind these couples again and again, in the midst of all of the chaos of planning, don't forget to keep the main thing the main thing. Now we've reached the end of this series in the book of Romans. It's a glorious book. It's dense with all kinds of life-changing truths. It's one that we've barely begun to scratch the surface of. It's a book you can spend a lifetime studying and yet never plumb the depths. And in a book so dense, it's easy for us to miss the main thing of Romans and the end for which it was written. For instance, we might think, is sin the main thing? I mean, Paul spends three whole chapters at the beginning... I would say no. What about justification by faith? This is key and important. You have chapters 4 and 5. No, I don't think that's it. How about the process of sanctification, chapters 6 and 7? 
or persevering in the faith, chapter 8, or the doctrine of predestination or the boundary-shattering inclusion of Gentiles, chapters 9 through 11. How about ethical living, chapters 12 and 13? How about unity, chapters 14 and 15? And then how about the mission of the gospel at the end of 15 into 16? And I would say no, 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 and no. As important as all of these things are, they are not the main thing of the book of Romans. The main thing is this, the glory of God. The story of Romans, in fact, the story of all of human history, is first and foremost not about us, but about God and about His glory displayed in the riches of salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ. The glory of God displayed in the Son of God who took on flesh, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and who one day come again for us to renew all things, all to the glory of His name. The main thing is the glory of God displayed in and through Jesus Christ. It's the glory of God which we are invited to enjoy in this life, the glory of God which we will enjoy for all of eternity. This is the main thing. And it's important for the main thing to remain the main thing. The main point of this morning's message is this. Our unity and our call to the mission of sharing the gospel is all unto the glory of God. Our unity and the mission of sharing the gospel, it is all unto the glory of God. I'm indebted to my good friend Marshall Brown for our outline this morning. He helped me earlier in the week make clarity of a lot of scripture. And the three points that we have this morning are unity, mission, and glory. Unity, mission, and and glory. Point number one, unity. Look with me at Romans 15, 1 through 5. Let me read this for us again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So chapter 14, which we heard about last week, it's all about this dynamic of unity, the weak and the strong, learning to love and bear with one another in and through our differences. And it's 15, 1 through 8 that is the culmination of this entire argument that Paul has been making through chapter 14, this argument for unity. It's in these verses that we see how Christ both exemplifies and enables the unity that Paul calls us to in chapter 14. In 15, 1 and following, Paul continues this theme of unity by re reiterating the strong, the mature have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. They are to set aside their preferences in order to bear with the weak. Rather than pleasing themselves, they are to set aside their freedoms for others. And in so doing, they will please their weak neighbor for their neighbor's good in order to build them up. Paul then points to the example of Christ. He does so by quoting Psalm 69.9. Christ, rather than pleasing himself... He took reproach upon himself, the reproach that we deserved. It says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is Christ speaking to us. 
What does Paul mean here? What, is he, what he is saying, I believe, is that the strongest of the strong, Jesus Christ, bore with us in our weakness. How did he do so? He took upon himself the reproach or the insults that we deserved and he placed them instead upon himself. In our weakness, in our sin, Jesus who was sinless, who was above reproach, he took upon himself the reproach of our sin. Jesus the strong took on the sins of the weak. He took our sins upon himself. And in so doing, he bore reproach and insults and mockery and judgment and ultimately death. He took the reproach that we deserved upon himself, the strong substituting himself for the weak so that we might experience the freedom of forgiveness. And if Christ, who was perfect in his holiness, could lay lay aside his strength, his freedom, his glory in order to bear our reproach and bear our sins... How much more, Paul is arguing, we who are imperfectly strong at best, how much more can we bear with our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ? And it's in so doing that we will grow in unity. When each person lays down their strength in order to bear with the weaknesses of the other, we are enabled to, as verse 5 says, live in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ as his fitting, fitting followers Of Christ. Now you might be asking, are there any boundaries to this call to unity? Are there any guidelines for how we are to live in unity with one another? For instance, for the sake of unity, are we the strong to bear with the weak, even if the weak are denying core tenets of the faith, even if the weak are saying sin isn't sin, are we to bear with them in the name of unity? Are there boundaries to how this unity works? In other words, is there a limit that Paul places on this call to unity? And the short answer to that question is yes. I picture beliefs as falling into concentric circles of importance. There are primary beliefs. There are core beliefs that are at the center of our faith. And to deny these core beliefs is to deny our faith altogether. That there are core beliefs that cannot be denied ought to be clear from Paul's argument. Throughout the entire book of Romans, he's been arguing for what is true, what are the core beliefs. This is what you ought to believe. There are core things that every Christian must believe. But let me use one of the passages that we find in these last two chapters of Romans to illustrate this. Look with me, flip over from 15.1 to 16, and I'm going to read 17 through 20. Romans 16, 17 through 20. Just a short passage to illustrate what I'm talking about. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not deserve, do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul is making clear here that there are some whose beliefs are contrary to the core doctrines of the faith. And we aren't actually to link arms with them in unity. He actually says in this passage we are to avoid them. We are to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, which requires that there is both good and evil, 
and that you and I are wise in discerning what is good and what is bad. And it is God in the Bible who defines what is good and what is evil and calls us to turn from our sins what is evil and embrace what is good. Now you may be asking, what are these core beliefs? What are the essential beliefs that, that Paul is talking about that he calls the doctrine? I mentioned last week prior to the recitation of the Apostles' Creed that this creed that we say every week is an excellent summary of what the essentials of the faith are, what the core tenets of Christianity are. These are the primary beliefs given to us in the Bible that are encapsulated in this creed that has been handed down for centuries through the church. And these are the core tenets that we must not deny in the name of unity because to deny these truths is to deny Christianity itself. For instance, from the Apostles' Creed, in the name of unity, we can't deny that God is triune. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. We can't deny the virgin birth or the divinity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit or that Jesus died a substitutionary death or that Jesus' bodily resurrection is real, that he was dead and he rose from the grave. We can't deny the necessity of faith and repentance for salvation. We can't deny forgiveness of sins, which means that there are things that God calls sin and that we need forgiven for. We can't deny belief in our own bodily resurrection or heaven or hell or eternity. All of these are outlined in the Apostles' Creed. They are core to what it means to be a Christian. And to deny them isn't a matter of agreeing to disagree for the sake of unity. To deny them is to step outside of Christianity altogether. There are essential truths that we must hold. But then there are secondary beliefs. There are important beliefs that are non-essential. These beliefs are important. They impact how we worship each week. But they don't rise to the level of what it means to be a genuine Christian. There are things we can differ on that to deny doesn't mean that we are not genuine believers. For instance, there are genuine believers who love God with their whole heart who differ on who should receive baptism. How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? How should we be governed as a church? Should we ordain women or not? Methods and models of discipleship. Approaches to preaching. The importance of church membership. How we understand God's role in salvation. Whether Christians today should speak in tongues and prophesy. The list goes on and on and on. These differences may lead us to worship in different contexts. But genuine believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom we will spend all of eternity, will differ on these things. But as long as we hold the core faith, we will spend eternity Together. Now, although secondary issues often lead people to worship in different contexts, I think Dan mentioned last week there are like 30,000 denominations and sects. We divide over all kinds of different things. It is possible for people who hold differences on secondary matters to set those aside for the sake of unity. For, the in for instance, there are many in our midst who even now are living out this call of unity. I know you in this congregation. We have members of grace who don't agree on the church's stance on male-only elders leading the church. Folks who don't agree on covenant children receiving baptism. Folks who don't agree on a Presbyterian form of government. And yet they are committed members of this local church because they love God. They love this church. They love the gospel. They love the community that is here. They love the mission that we have to reach the North Shore, Chicago, and beyond. And if that is you, if you have chosen for the sake of unity to set aside things that are important but secondary, I commend you because you are living out the call to unity that this passage teaches us. You are living out what it means to have unity around the essentials of the faith. So we've got these essentials and non-essentials, primary, secondary. 
Lastly, there are these tertiary beliefs, these non-essential and oftentimes unimportant ones that don't need to divide us, but often do because we make them into primary and secondary issues. These are the type of issues I believe Paul is actually addressing in chapters 14 and 15. In Paul's context, he was talking about meat offered to idols and whether we should celebrate certain sacred days. And they were bringing division. But often, I don't think any of us, any of you struggling this week on whether you should eat meat offered to idols. No. Okay. So that's not our problem, is it? Our problems are different. For example, you might hear someone say or hear yourself say, I could never worship at a church that fill in the blank, that has a band, or where words to the songs are put up on the screen, or where the pastor wears casual clothes, or a church that doesn't have adult education or small groups, a church where members drink or members don't drink, a church that is too white or too black or too rich or too poor, too old, too young, too married, too single, too large, too small, too many Democrats, too many Republicans, or where I don't agree with 100% of every dotted I and cross T of theology. I couldn't possibly worship there. Now, I agree that each of these factors, they impact our church life, but they are not primary core issues. I'm not even sure that they're secondary issues. Often these are simply habits or our preferences that we harden into things that we believe are moral absolutes and therefore we divide unnecessarily over them. And it's these issues that God calls us to lay down, the strong bearing with the weak, like Christ, choosing not to please ourselves and satisfy our own preferences, rather choosing to live in harmony with one another for the sake of gospel unity. To the degree that we work to live in unity in these primary areas and to overlook the secondary and tertiary matters, we are living out this creed in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty in all things charity. I believe that that's Christ's heart. I believe that's what Christ took reproach for us to be as a people. To set aside all but what is core in order that we might live together as his people. That is what Paul is calling us to in chapter 15. Now I know I've spent a ton of time on unity and I said to keep the main thing the main thing. And so the imbalance of this message is actually on unity. But the unity is unto something else. And that is point number two. Mission. Look with me at 15, 5 and 6, and we're going to emphasize verse 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that to this end, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, unity isn't for unity's sake. Unity is unto mission. When we live as one, our unity allows us to amplify the gospel. Rather than many voices talking over one another, bickering with one another over secondary and tertiary matters, we unite in one voice over the core doctrines of the gospel that are important, that are salvific, that save, and it allows us to, with one voice, speak with unity and clarity and amplify the gospel to a world that is watching And listening, unity is unto mission. When we live as one, united around the gospel, speaking with one voice, this unity enables us to more effectively spread the good news of the gospel to the North Shore, Chicago, and beyond. For the sake of illustration, consider for a moment what the world sees when they see us living in disunity. 
What the world sees and thinks when it observes the church in disarray, squabbling over unimportant matters. If the world wanted needless tribalism where differences were used to demonize and to divide, they don't need the church for that. All they have to do is look around them in the culture. The culture has disunity in spades. What the world needs is a compelling community of Christians who proclaim the good news of Christ and display that good news in how we welcome and treat those who differ with us in secondary and tertiary matters. We see this unity displayed in Romans 15, 8 through 21, where Paul highlights the inclusion of the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles separated for 2,000 years. Jesus arrives and he obliterates the differences. And now the world sees that these Jews and Gentiles are now living in unity in a church loving one another. And when they do so, they see that the gospel that these Jews and Gentiles that are now united believe is sufficient that it can break down any dividing wall in culture. It bears witness to the good news of the gospel. And this good news of the gospel, it's a gospel word in a community and it is spread all the way to Rome. And then Paul is talking to them, look, I am so excited, he says. The gospel has gotten all the way to you, to the capital of the known world. But you know what? I have a bigger vision for this gospel. I want this gospel to go to the entire world. I'm going to use you, Rome, as a springboard to Spain. Because Paul knows that the gospel isn't just for the Roman world. It's not just for the Jewish world or the Gentile world. It is for all of the nations of the earth. Even Paul's list of greetings in chapter 16 points to, this, points to a diversity of this unifying gospel mission. And what it has brought to the Roman church. In this list of greetings, Paul affectionately mentions men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, married and single, rich and poor. All of these various house churches in Rome all united as a people and churches around the good news of the gospel of Christ. Unified for gospel mission to proclaim Christ. You see, friends, our lives, not just individually, but as a unified church, bear witness to the world of the unifying power of the gospel we proclaim. We've been baptized into God's name. We bear his name and therefore we represent him to the world. And more than what we say, the world is watching how we live. And the question is when they look at us, when they see the church, what do they see? Do they see a body that is diverse and unified around one thing, the gospel? Or do they see us dividing over things that are unimportant? Friends, we have the opportunity to have unity, not for unity's sake, but unity for the sake of mission that a watching world can see a loving community that is built around and transformed by the gospel. If Christ can bear our reproach for us and in so doing unite us to God, how much more can we live selfless lives of love, unified as God's people for the sake of proclaiming and displaying the good news of Christ? So point number one, unity. Point number two, unity is unto mission. And finally, mission is unto glory. Look with me at 15, 5 through 7, with the emphasis on 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that the, together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For this reason, for the glory of God. Unity unto mission, unto glory. 
We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. We live in unity so that we might with one voice proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So that others might come to know Christ. And in so doing, as the nations come to know Christ, more and more people throughout the world, throughout the ages, will glorify God in and through Jesus Christ. The purpose of our existence is to glorify God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one teaches us, question, what is the chief end of man? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The purpose of our lives, the purpose of all creation is to bring glory to God. As Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, at the end of his whole exposition of the gospel, what does he say? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, at the end of the day, all that we do, it is not about us. It's not about us. We live for the glory of God. All of human history isn't pointing at humanity. It is pointing to God. It's not about our sin or our justification or our sanctification or our perseverance, obedience, unity, or even our mission. All of these point to highlight and amplify the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ, whose life, death, resurrection, and return will redeem and restore all things, all to the glory of God. That's why Paul, at the end of his letter, ends with glory being given to God. When all is said and done, 16 chapters of theology and exhortation and correction and instruction, when all that is said and done, Paul ends with these words. Look with me at 1625, the end of the book. Now to him, to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through, through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to him, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Unity unto mission unto glory. May we as a church live in unity. Not for the sake of unity, but for the sake of mission. That we with one voice might proclaim to anyone we come in contact the glory and the good news of Jesus Christ. So that in and through Jesus Christ, God the Father, Son, and Spirit might be glorified. Unity unto mission unto glory. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we might be a bastion of the good news of Jesus Christ on the North Shore. That we might hold firmly to all that is essential. That we might, for the sake of unity, set aside things that are secondary. So that we, with one voice, might hold forth as a unified people the good news of Christ. That it might be a banner above our church that people come to and they see so that they might worship and know him and that in and through this church the reach of the gospel might extend beyond us to Chicago, to our country, and to the nations. Father, use us in this way, unified in Christ, living for you, loving one another, and proclaiming your son. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.